seated. I'm going to start this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm just going to start in verse 1 and uh, read the things that Paul is writing to Timothy, a spirit, who is his spiritual son. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have, made, I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, unfeigned just simply means sincere, without pretense. When I call to, remember the un, uh, call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that is in thee also. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I want you to notice again that Paul talked about what Timothy had because he had laid hands on him. Now I want you to look with me also to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 8. Writing to the Romans by the Holy Ghost, Paul said, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Remember, that's what he just said about Timothy. Making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you. Notice verse 11. That I long to see you. For I long to see you. That I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. To the end, you may be established. Folks, Paul believed in laying on the hands. Paul was directed by the Holy Ghost, obviously. He was directed by the Holy Ghost to transfer or to transmit certain spiritual qualities. He calls them spiritual gifts. I want to make sure that, that nobody thinks of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when it talks about spiritual gifts. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about manifestations of the Spirit in the same list or in the same manner that he describes to the Corinthians. He's talking about some endowment, something from God through the laying on of hands. Now, where Romans, uh, the letter he wrote to the Romans is concerned, he doesn't have anything in mind. He's not saying, I want to come bring you some spiritual gift, and, and here's what this spiritual gift is, and here's what it will do for you. He's just looking for the impartation. He's just expecting and desiring that when he comes to Rome, when he finally gets to Rome, he says in another place concerning his travels, I attempted to come to you many times before, but Satan hindered me. But his plan is when he gets to Rome, that he will impart some spiritual gift 
impart some spiritual gift to them. I've been thinking a lot about that uh, this week. I've been thinking a lot about what Paul would want to give us if he came to our church. And of course, Paul's not the, not the, shouldn't be the focus, isn't the focus. But what would God have us to have? Now, I know it's, the Bible is true where it says we're all sufficient in God. In Christ is all sufficiency. I know the Bible is true when it tells even what Paul said to the, to the Corinthians. You come behind in no good gift. These things, talking about spiritual gifts and manifestations of the Spirit, those things manifest as the Lord wills, as, as the Holy Spirit really wills, not according to our will. But Paul has a will. Paul wills to impart something to this church. So I've been thinking about that and I've been taking stock of what we've done relative to the church since the time we started some, well, what is it now? We started in January of 86. You do the math, 30-something years. And I, this is not an unusual thing for me. I regularly try to identify and, and judge what we're providing what we're teaching, I'm consistently making sure and praying about it that we're doing what God sent us here to do. God didn't send us here to do everything, but he did send us here to do something. I think a lot of times churches and even Christians, individual Christians, get in trouble because they try to do what God sent somebody else to do. So if I had three wishes, if there were three things that I could wish or will into being for you, here they are. The first thing, if I could give you, and and if this was the only thing that I could give you, the one thing that I would choose, first and foremost, most importantly, to give to you is spiritual hunger. If I had the ability, if I could make it happen to give you any one thing, I'd give you a greater hunger for God. I've been blessed to have been around a couple of people in my life for short periods of time, but long enough to get something from them. Now, I could tell you of maybe five different sermons that have impacted my life, five different messages that really, really struck home with me and and made a lasting change in me. But if I had to identify what one thing made the difference, the biggest difference in my relationship with God, my finding out God's plan for me and walking in it it would have to be that one man influenced me I was influenced by one man and that influence and and it was from afar it wasn't something I had at that time it wasn't something that I had personal connection or contact with but the influence of Kenneth Hagin changed the course of my life 
Now, it's, now what's interesting about that is that Brother Hagin had no idea that he had that kind of influence on me. I only got around Brother Hagin and had the opportunity to, to be around Brother Hagin after the influence had already set the course of my life. I was influenced by Brother Hagin in the, through cassette tapes long before I ever met him. And that influence put me in a position where I wound up going to Bible school in Tulsa. Became acquainted with Brother Hagin. He truly became my spiritual father. And so that influence was increased and certainly enhanced, magnified many times over. And he had no idea that he had that influence on me. He had no idea. Since the influence came through the teaching of the word recorded on tape, how would he know? Now, he came to know. I made sure to tell him. I made sure he understood the impact that he had on my life. And he wasn't comfortable with it. Whenever I'd say something about it, he would, wasn't comfortable with it at all. He'd always try to pass it off. Or he'd just say, thank God, the word works. Because he never considered himself to be the source of that influence. He saw the word do that job. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. There's something, a passage of scripture here that tells us about Jesus when he was resurrected, when he was raised from the dead. That's always had a big impact on me. Because of the drastic change in the shift that took place in my life, the course of my life, the direction of my life. By the word of God. Because of. The years that I had opportunity to be around Brother Hagen. Work with him closely. I worked with him on his crusade team. And so whenever we'd go into a, a city. And hold a campaign. I was right there with him when he was ministering the healing anointing. Ministering the power of God to the sick. And I learned a lot of things. Not because he tried to teach me, but I learned through experience. I learned through being around people when the, the healing power of God was administered to them. And that experience was certainly invaluable. But there's a story in Luke chapter 24 that, that kind of encapsulates or defines the influence that I'm talking about. Let's start in verse 13. Prior to this, it tells us about Jesus being raised from the dead and the women see him. Mary particularly saw the angels and so forth, saw Jesus appear to her as well and give her directions. But this is before Jesus appears in the midst of the disciples as recorded in, in some of the other gospels. So it says, and behold, two of them, talking about his disciples, that same day went to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about three score furlongs. We don't know how long a furlong is, so we don't know how long a trip it was, but apparently it was somewhere you could walk there and back, maybe just a couple of miles. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. Here's the disciples of Jesus that are talking about the things 
relative to the resurrection or relative to the crucifixion and then also the things that they've heard from Mary about Jesus being raised from the dead. And they talked together of all these things which had happened and it came to pass while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. The word holden means to seize or take hold of. Now there was a purpose that God had in their eyes not being opened. Now I want you to understand, I want you to see. The disciples are certainly focused on the right things. They care about Jesus' resurrection. It's a day of joy, at least to the degree that they've heard the first report from Mary that Jesus is alive. But their eyes still weren't opened yet. Their eyes were holding that they should not know him. And he said unto them, what manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, somebody tell me who Cleopas is. Any clue? He's not one of the twelve. And since he's not one of the twelve, we have to understand that the resurrection of Jesus impacted a lot more than just those twelve or eleven since Judas was gone. So one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem? And hast thou not known the things which are come to pass in these days? In other words, he's saying, where have you been? You don't know about the stuff that we're talking about, which implies that all of Jerusalem is talking about it. Now, folks, there's no report yet that Jesus is alive. So the only thing they could be talking about is Jesus' crucifixion, his death. Are you with me? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed and in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. I want you to understand something else. The disciples thought that the cross was a place of defeat. They're saying, But we thought that he was going to redeem Israel. Meaning they don't realize what he has done in the three days between his death and his resurrection. We trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. So these things have to be concerning the death and the crucifixion of Jesus. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which went with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so, as the women had said, but they saw him not. Remember, John's account is that Peter ran ahead. Well, I'm sorry, that John ran ahead. He was younger and faster. And then Peter came in afterwards and they saw for themselves that the tomb was empty. But they still didn't know what it meant. Then said he unto them. Here's what Jesus said or responded. Remember they, don't, they can't see him yet. They don't know who he is. I wonder if Jesus still does that. I wonder if he goes places and, and keeps us from knowing who he is. 
the stealth ministry of Jesus. <laughs> then said he unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Shouldn't this have happened? Well, in their thinking from a fleshly standpoint, no, it shouldn't. Remember at the Last Supper, John particularly tells us a lot about the attitude of the disciples when Jesus said, I'm going away. Now he said, I'm going away and coming back. But if I don't go away, I can't prepare the place for you. Now the place he's talking about, John 14 refers to, and the way Jesus explained it to him, he said, in my father's house are many mansions. People look at that word mansion and they think he's talking about homes. I, honest to God, folks, as a young child in a Southern Baptist Sunday school, we were told that Jesus went to heaven ahead of us to build mansions for us. And when the construction project was complete, he's coming back. We were told that. Now, I'm sure the people that told us that, Sunday school teachers that told us that, were sincere and loved God. But God made the earth in six days. And he's still hammering nails? Well, he was a carpenter, you know. So Jesus said, shouldn't this have happened? Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Folks, there are hundreds of scriptures in the Old Testament that refer to the coming of Jesus, refer to the, the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is talking to these guys a long time about this stuff. I've said before, I'll say it again, I'd love to have notes of what Jesus said. Even better, I wish there was a video. But he's bringing to their understanding what the Bible said about what the Messiah should do. Now, when did Jesus find this out? Did Jesus offer himself up on the cross, choose death for the sake of eternal life for the people of God? And then after he's crucified or after he's raised from the dead then he finds out about all these scriptures that talk about him no of course not he knew these things were there all, all the time during his earthly ministry he's known these things were there now remember the Bible says Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory and came to earth to be a man so that has to mean that Jesus if he's a man like us and the reason that he said that we could do the same works and should do the same works that he does or that he did and even greater works was because of the work that he did, the sacrificial work that he did as a man, not as the son of God. So that means if he laid aside his heavenly power and glory, if he came to the earth to be just like us, only without the sin, the original sin of Adam in the garden, the Bible says in Romans chapter 12 that by Adam's sin, death entered the world by sin. Spiritual death overtook mankind. So if Jesus comes to the earth to be a man, if he was completely man, 
which he said that he was, which he said was the reason that he laid aside his heavenly power and glory, then that means he had to learn the scriptures the same way you and I do. That means he couldn't have come to the earth with remembrance of being with God the Father before the world began. He couldn't. Who would be able to compete with that kind of knowledge, that kind of remembrance? And when I use the word compete, I'm just talking about how in the world could he say that we would do the same things as him if that's where he started? We certainly didn't start there. We can't start there. But on the other hand, if he humbled himself, if he stripped himself of his heavenly power and glory to come to the earth to be a man fully and completely, born of the Holy Ghost, anointed of God, but still all man, then he learned of himself through the scriptures just like we're supposed to learn of ourselves through the scriptures. So beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And they, when they drew nigh unto the village, whether they went, and as he made as though he would have gone further, they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to them, And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. Folks, this is the ultimate game of (laughs) peekaboo. Now, what opened their eyes? Jesus eating at the table. I mean, could we really say that that's what caused caused them to recognize him? We didn't understand who he was and couldn't tell who he was when we were walking with him. And when he was preaching all the scriptures that we heard him preach during his earthly ministry. But when he sat down to eat, that's when we knew it was him. That doesn't make sense. It's interesting to me that their eyes were opened after he had expounded to them the word. But they tell us. They give us the key. Their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us? While he talked with us by the way and while he opened up the scriptures. And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together And them that were with him saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And when they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, peace be unto you. So you get the sequence of events here. But again, notice what they said. They said, didn't our heart burn within us? When he was talking about himself in the word. Didn't our hearts burn within us? Folks, that's the kind of spiritual hunger I experienced when I got a hold of some of the teaching that let me know, that informed me, and it was was new information for me. Brother Hagin's tape series on mountain-moving faith. It was the first inkling 
the first suggestion that I had ever had that we were supposed to reign as kings in this life and operate in authority on this earth. So I went to Bible school. Went to Bible school in 1980. Moved from Birmingham, Alabama to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, really. Out in a little suburb outside of Tulsa. And my heart was burning on the inside of me because of things that I had heard. And the brief visit I had had a few months before where I saw for myself what was going on and what was the attitude of the students at that Bible school. And I can honestly say that the more I learned about God, the more my heart burned within me. And when I did have the privilege to be around Brother Hagin and saw that the guy was real, I mean somebody that lived by what he preached, then my heart would burn even more. If I could give you any one thing, it would be spiritual hunger. I heard Brother Hagin say, and you've probably heard him too, if you've listened to any of his tapes and messages from time past. I heard Brother Hagin say numerous times, the greatest need in the body of Christ is to renew their mind to the word. If that's the greatest need for the body of Christ, why doesn't that happen any more than it does? Because it takes spiritual hunger to do it. And too much of the church world just isn't hungry. Jesus said, blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. If you're not hungry for it, if you're not thirsty for the things of God, you won't be filled. Now that spiritual influence or that spiritual hunger that I would wish upon each one of you. That spiritual hunger would cut across all lines. For example, for unbelievers, that spiritual hunger would draw them into salvation. For those that are saved but not filled with the Holy Ghost, I'd give a spiritual hunger that would lead them into the baptism of the Spirit so they could operate with power like Jesus said they would. For those that are lukewarm or backslidden, the spiritual hunger I'd give to them would bring them back into close fellowship with God. Because none of those things happen without spiritual hunger. Nobody just falls in. It takes spiritual hunger to bring it about. I believe that spiritual hunger is the greatest gift that God can bestow on anyone. And look at how he gave, him, gave it to these guys. It's interesting to me, and it's a pattern that holds true in every respect. Spiritual hunger is developed by knowledge of the word. James said this, James chapter 4 verse 8, James said, draw near unto God and he'll draw near unto you. See folks, Jesus has already been sent. God's already made his move. Now it's your move. If you're going to be hungry, it's going to be because you stir something up. If you're going to be hungry for more of God, it's going to be because of something you do, not because of something he does.
God's perfect gentleman. He doesn't go where he's not welcome. He won't impose himself on those who aren't hungry. I believe the most important thing in the life of a Christian is spiritual hunger. And that must be stirred up by the knowledge of God's word. Now, that's not the only way to stir it up. You can stir it up by speaking in other tongues as well. The Bible says, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself. He strengthens himself. He empowers himself. But again, that power doesn't come because God determined you to have it. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the power generator, which is speaking in other tongues. But it's up to you to flip the switch. We can let that power grow cold and become ineffective. Or we can keep it stirred up. Did you notice that's what Paul told Timothy? He said the gift that you've been given came by laying on of my hands. But stir that gift up. You're going to have to stir it up. The greatest thing I could wish for you is spiritual hunger. John said this, writing to the church, he said, I have no greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. Now, the children he's talking about are his spiritual children. Those that his life has influenced. He said, I have no greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. You know the second thing I'd give you? The second thing I'd give you, if I could give you anything there is, I would give you the knowledge, the understanding that the Word of God is the answer. It doesn't contain answers. It is the answer. It doesn't just contain instruction or direction. It is the direction of God available for us. Now here's the difference in how much of the church world sees the Bible Maybe the definitions themselves are in the terms. If the Bible is just the Bible to you, then the chances are you're going to be reading scriptures with your eyes holding like the two disciples. Paul talked about when he wrote to the Hebrews, if Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews, and I believe he is. Paul wrote by the Holy Ghost to the Hebrews and talked about an experience or an event in their history that they were acquainted with. It was when Moses went up into the mountain, Mount Sinai, and received the Ten Commandments. You remember he came back down from the mountain, and the children of Israel had made the golden calf and all that goofy stuff that went on. But if we fast forward a little bit, when Moses came back down with the second set of the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments 2.0. Remember his face shined. And the people couldn't handle it. They asked him to put a veil over his face. Now folks, you get this. The guy that's experienced the manifest presence of God was supposed to change for the benefit of the people who were afraid of his face. As an example, that the Bible tells us the Old Testament is for us, 
as New Testament believers, Moses put the veil over his face at their request. See, he just had too much of God for them. Let that sink in. Folks, that's why there is so much clamor and activity that's taking place and increasing in the world that we live in today to shut down the church, to shut down the power of the name of Jesus. See, people that come in contact with other people that have more of God than themselves, they come under conviction. And their answer for conviction is not draw closer to God. Their answer for conviction is get rid of you so they don't feel condemned. That's the way the devil works. That's the way our world is going. And so you've got a lot of church that read the word, maybe through discipline, maybe through a commitment they've made to a Bible reading program, whatever. But they're reading words that even though Jesus said were spirit and life, those words don't produce life in them. Because for the most part, because they haven't accepted the Bible as the word of God. See, if the Bible's just the Bible, then it's going to be an interesting book. And there are certainly going to be good things and good principles and good morals that are promoted. But if it's the Word of God to you, and again, this goes back to spiritual hunger. If it's the Word of God to you, then every word is precious, every word is important. John Lake said this. He said, the scientist reads a textbook and understands there's meaning in every word. He said, we as Christians should read the Word of God like it's a textbook. And it is. It is the answer. Interestingly enough, in my opinion, I find it interesting that the Bible is called a sword several different times in several different ways. Paul, in talking to the Ephesians chapter 6 about being strong in the Lord and putting on the armor of God, every one of the pieces of the armor are defensive except for the word, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, your loins girt about with truth, even above or over all the other, the shield of faith which will quench every fiery dart of the wicked. But the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. You remember in, March, uh, in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was tempted of the devil? Three temptations were presented to Jesus. The first was physical. Jesus was hungry, and so the devil shows up and says, If you're really the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Well, Jesus had the power to do that. He could have done that. But remember how he answered. And he answered them all the same way. He said it, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
He's saying spiritual food is more important than natural food, physical food. Then he was tempted to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. And the devil used scripture. He said, even as it's written in the Psalms, the angel shall bear, shall bear thee up lest you dash your foot upon a stone. Jesus turned around and said, it's also written. He's using the word again. It's also written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Finally, the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said, all these kingdoms, I'll, the power and authority of all these kingdoms I'll give to you. Before we go further, folks, realize what the devil is showing. He's revealing that his plan is to find one person to give all governmental authority to. Jesus would have been a great candidate for that if only it sold out. The Antichrist has always been Satan's plan. He said, so the devil said, I'll give you all the authority of these kingdoms for it has been delivered unto me. Isn't that sad? All the authority of governmental kingdoms on this earth have been delivered to Satan. But how has it been delivered? It's not like God took authority from man and gave it to the devil. That's not the way it works. He has all this authority through the one and only one way he works, and that's through deception. The deception of spiritual death. And the agenda that he has created to fulfill that, the promotion of that. Jesus answered the same thing, or answered in the same way. He said, it is written, thou shalt worship only the Lord thy God. And the Bible says that the devil left him for a season. The Bible says the devil left him for a season. Now there's an important point here that I want you to see. Jesus looks like he's playing defense. The devil tempts him. Jesus defends himself against the temptation. The devil tempts him again. Jesus defends himself so that he doesn't take a step into the devil's territory. Third time the devil tempts him and Jesus takes a position with the word of God that defends him from entering into sin. But the offensive weapon of the word of God reveals that much of the power of God's word that enables us to overcome is to reveal the, to reveal the true plans of the enemy. Now the contrast Jesus being tempted of the devil in Matthew chapter 4 and Adam and Eve being tempted in the Garden of Eden. The devil tries to throw off on what God has said. He questions what God has said. And Adam and Eve don't respond. It'd been real easy. Well, Eve started to respond when Satan brought the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to her attention. She said, God told us not to eat. But that was the last thing she said about what God said. And so, the deception of the enemy was not exposed. The deception of the enemy was successful because she didn't use the word of God, neither did Adam. It's not just her fault. Somebody said, where would we be if without the women? John Osteen used to say we'd still be in the Garden of Eden. 
but he said it with a smile on his face, so he got away with it. Now, I would never say that. I'm just reporting what he used to say. <laughs> Folks, deception can't work if it's not deception. What the, Bible, what the devil attempts to do in secret, in the dark, the Bible says the entrance of God's word gives light. It'll reveal the deceptive purpose of the enemy. Now, if Adam and Eve had known in, uh, ahead of time how the devil operates, what the devil's going to attempt to do, and how to use the word to expose him, do you think they would have fallen? Not a chance. They instantly regretted it after they did it. Well, why'd they do it? Because they didn't see, see what was really going on. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, The word of God is quick and powerful. King James says, quick and powerful. Other translations say full of life and power and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is an offensive weapon, folks. It is to be used, not just read, not just studied, but to be used. And the effective use of that Scripture, the Word of God, which Jesus said is spirit and life, will keep us from sin will keep us in what God has for us to do. So the second thing I'd give you is the knowledge and understanding that the Bible is the answer in every regard and in every respect. Third thing I'd give you is an understanding of righteousness. Now some might say, wait a minute. You've got spiritual hunger. That works for everything. You've got the knowledge of the Word of God as the answer to every crisis, every situation in, uh, that we could ever encounter. What about the name of Jesus? Folks, the name of Jesus is of utmost importance. But the name of Jesus is used in much of the church world. I hope this doesn't include you. But it's used in much of the church world as a good luck charm. As just a saying uh, uh, a conclusion to prayer. Just let God know you're coming close to the end. But remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10. He sent his disciples out. Actually, this was the 70. He sent them two and two, groups of two, to go into all the cities where he would go and sell. He told them to heal the sick if the city would receive them and declare unto them the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. And it says in verse 17 that they returned with joy. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. Now, if you go back and look earlier in the chapter, you can't find anywhere where Jesus talked about casting out devils. He didn't say anything in any respect other than heal the sick about exercising authority over the devil in any of his works or in any way whatsoever. But they found through the use of the name of Jesus they found that it had granted them authority over the devil. And Jesus said, I beheld lightning fall as, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. He's talking about when the devil rose up against God and rebelled with a third of the angels and how God utterly cast him down, threw him out of heaven. There was not some long protracted war that God barely won by the skin of his teeth. The devil rose up against God. God said, be gone. 
and he fell like lightning. Jesus describes it as falling like lightning. Lightning's pretty quick, isn't it? And it makes a loud boom when it makes contact with the earth. That's what Jesus described as the devil's defeat. So he said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. He talked about how that through our authority, nothing by any means shall hurt us. But then he said something that's, that's kind of puzzling. It, it, well, it could be kind of puzzling, I guess. He said, but in this rejoice not. He said, don't rejoice because the devils are subject to, to under you. Don't rejoice because you have authority over the devil. Now, folks, if we'll stop right there, I would say that most of the church world would rejoice over that if they found out to be true. I mean, that seems to me to be something worth rejoicing over, doesn't it, you? But what did Jesus say? They've experienced the power of his name to exercise authority over the devil. He said, in this rejoice not that the devils are subject unto you, but that your names are written in heaven. What does it mean for your name to be written in heaven? It means you've been made righteous by the sacrifice of Jesus. See, folks, everything that we have, including the use of the name of Jesus, is dependent on our understanding of relationship that we have with God because of what Jesus did. Romans 5.17 says it this way. Moreover, if by one man's disobedience... Death ruled by one. Much more. Much more. I say this often, but I, I have to add this in any time we come to a much more. Paul talked a lot about much mores in the Bible. And it literally means, that from the original language, the original Greek, it really means one thing that is so far beyond another thing that it doesn't really make sense to use them as a comparison. So he said, if by one man's offense or one man's disobedience, death passed upon all men, much more, they that received grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. So the third thing I would want for you, the third thing I would impart to you if I could give you anything, is an understanding of your right standing with God. An understanding of the fact that you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Paul is very instructive to us in this regard. He doesn't pull any punches about the struggle that he had with his flesh. After he's saved in a miraculous way, I didn't get saved going down the street with a light shining from heaven that knocked me off the car that I was riding in. Did you? Paul has a conversion experience that rivals anybody's. But even though Paul's conversion experience is so miraculous, so unusual, so spectacular, and a few days later he's baptized in the Holy Ghost and begins speaking in tongues because of Ananias going in and laying his hands on him. Even though Paul is saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, he still talks about the struggle that he had with his flesh. And he comes to the understanding after struggling with his inability to control his flesh. His flesh leading him into things that he, the man on the inside, the born again, real him, didn't want to participate in. And the struggle that he had with the real man on the inside wanting to do things 
that were good and pleasing in God's eyes and not having the ability to control his flesh for those things to happen either. He looks like he's striking out in both, on both sides of the street. But he comes to an understanding. He comes to the understanding that because he's been made righteous, just like we have, there's no condemnation in Christ. And that becomes the cornerstone, the foundation for anything and everything that he reveals to us that we are in Christ Jesus. And the unlimited potential of the power of God that's in us already. Paul wrote to the church. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll close with this. Beginning in verse 16. Paul said I cease not to give thanks for you. Making mention of you in my prayers. He's already said that about Timothy. He's already said that about the Romans. This must hold a high priority in Paul's estimation. Praying for the churches. Praying for the people. He said, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. To the what end? That the eyes of your understanding, this word understanding is the word spirit, that your spiritual eyes would be enlightened or opened. That sounds a lot like those guys on the road to Emmaus. That your spiritual eyes would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. That same power that he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Folks, I see spiritual hunger in this prayer. Don't you? That our eyes would be opened. That we would see things from our hearts, from our spirit. The way that they really are. Now what's going to give us that ability to do so? The word of God. It's the only thing that can divide between soul and spirit. It's the only thing that can provide us with the wisdom. To separate what the world says is good. What the spirit of the world says is good. What the devil says is good. And what's truly good. The word's the only source for that. It's the only source for that. The word of God is the only thing that can divide between soul and spirit. And that's why Paul says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. What do you think was Paul's experience why he started using the examples of the word of God being like a sword? He found it to be his effective defense and offensive weapon against the work of the enemy. Once he found out there's no condemnation. Once it came to the understanding that we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He's the one that tells us. He's the one that revealed that, well, reveals to us what was revealed to him. He's the one. How do you find out? By the full-time pursuit of God himself. You remember what Paul said was most important to him? He said, uh, forgetting the past... I put these things back. I count them as nothing, less than nothing, really. And press forward toward the one mark, the prize of the high calling of Jesus. What was that prize for him? He said himself that I might know him. 
Paul never stopped being hungry. The thing that made Paul's ministry so effective is that he never stopped being hungry. He never diminished or decreased in his spiritual hunger. He always wanted to know more of God. So much so that he even added some other things to know. That I might know God and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for all the wonderful things you've done for us through the sacrifice of Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection. And Father, we remind you that we've prayed this. Some of us pray this every day, even as Paul did. And since we have prayed this before, we're not asking you to do it again, but in faith we're thanking you for what you have done and are doing. We thank you for giving us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. We thank you for opening our spiritual eyes that we might know what is the hope of your calling for us as a church but also as individuals, members of the body of Christ. We thank you for opening our eyes to know what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in us. We thank you for opening the eyes of our spirits that we might know the exceeding greatness of your power which works in us as believers. The very same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That power dwells in us. Father, we commit to you that we will stir up the gift of God within us, whatever that gift may be. We'll stir it up. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. Help us to stay spiritually hungry. Bring hunger, spiritual hunger, to those that are cold. Restore a spiritual hunger to those that are lukewarm. And Holy Spirit, stoke the flames, the fire, for those of us that are still hungry. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see as we should see, that we might know as we should know, and that we might understand as we should understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Those are my three Christmas wishes, folks. Spiritual hunger, knowing that the word is the way, it is the answer, and knowing who we are in him, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Let's all stand. Let's just lift our hands as we close and thank God for being so good to us. We love you, Father. We thank you so much for all that belongs to us. We thank you that you, the all-sufficient one, the all-powerful one, 
will never let us down. Thank you that your word cannot fail. It cannot fail and it will not fail. No matter what. We commit ourselves to you, Lord. We thank you for opening our eyes. We thank you that the word of God still burns within our hearts. We thank you, Father, for making us an influence that changes people's lives. In Jesus' name. If you can agree with that, say amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Don't forget healing school tonight at 6.